It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Mark McLean, CEO and founder of SailPoint Technologies. Mark brings almost 35 years of experience in technology to the company, with over 20 years as a founder and leader of innovative identity management operations. Mark directs and drives the overall vision and strategy for SailPoint, which is underpinned by his commitment and passion for building top-performing teams, creating a collaborative and innovative work environment, and focusing continuously on the needs of their customers. Prior to SailPoint, Mark co-founded Waveset Technologies, which was ultimately acquired by Sun Microsystems, and his early career includes diverse experience in international sales and marketing with Hewlett-Packard and IBM Tivoli Systems. Mark McLean, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brandon. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's great to have you here. We're about four weeks in in early April when we're recording this uh, due to the coronavirus uh, situation. And I know we're both working from our home studios today. So uh, I really, really appreciate you carving out time. And, you know, before we get started and, you know, kind of talk about your early years, you know, tell us just a little bit about how the coronavirus has affected your business. Well, Brand, it's certainly affected us from an employee standpoint. Everybody mm. has rapidly shifted to working from home, like so many yeah. companies have. We're blessed in that we're a fundamentally digital company, right? We don't make any physical things. So while we have some offices, a big one here in Austin, Texas, one in Tel Aviv and one in Pune, India, pretty much everybody could rotate to working from home without much challenge. <laughs> so so yeah. we manage that. And of course, That's like great. like everyone on the business side, we're kind of... It's certainly concerned about the health and, and life impact on this thing. And of course, yes. the secondary effect in the economy is becoming another significant concern. And, and we're just going to hopefully watch and see how that, that goes for us. And, and we believe our fundamentals and our demand in the market are still strong, but we may experience a bit of a bumpy ride for the next few quarters. I'm, I'm thinking a lot of folks are feeling that way right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad to hear you're safe and well with your family around you. And let's start with that. Uh, tell us me a little bit about your early years, you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a L.A. kid. Uh, mm -hmm. I grew up in the greater Los Angeles area, a suburb of L.A. Um, spent most of my first 30 years in California, actually all of my first 30 plus years in California, most of it in Southern. Uh, right. I grew up in a, in a Tight-knit family, uh, one of four boys. I'm the oldest of four boys in six oh my years. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I pity your mother. <laughs> she had three of us, so I know. <laughs> well, there you go. Add one. And and my mom thankfully loved having boys, she always said. And so that yeah. was a 
a, a fun upbringing. We were kind of, I always like to say, the lower end of middle class. I never worried mm-hmm. about food on the table, but we certainly weren't um, weren't experiencing um, a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, luxuries in our lives. So it was a pretty pretty humble beginning. What was Dad's career, Mark? Dad was a, a social welfare workers, oh, and, and Mom it. was a teacher. So as you know, those are neither known for being super lucrative careers. Yeah, yeah. And so she taught as well as raised four boys. That's that's a trooper. Brent, yeah. she stopped she? during the fun uh, the fun child raising years when my youngest <laughs> brother was about a uh, fourth grader, I think, something like that. She went right. back to teaching, um, and uh, so yeah, we had a real fun kind of somewhat you know classic rambunctious a bunch of boys kind of boyhood. Um, great great fun. Grew up in kind of like I said a suburb of L.A. Right. Um, raised in the church, kind of strong Christian yeah. heritage, and and that was a big part of our upbringing. Um, and both parents were college educated, you know, so sort of education was sort of a focus. And with right. a mom as a teacher, <laughs> it was expected that you'd go to college. I'm sure down the road. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we're both members of C12, a uh, global uh, CEO advisory group of faith-based businesses. And I was glad to hear that you also, you know, kind of grew up in a Christian home. Did did he play a pretty big role? Were you involved in church more than going on Sundays and got involved in a lot of youth events as well? Yeah, Brett, it's a, it's a funny story. I grew up in a, in a, well, interestingly enough, they don't refer to themselves as a denomination, but a group called the Church Christ, which is pretty big here in the South uh, right. of the United States. And as I like to say, when the doors were open, we were there. So Sunday morning, <laughs> Sunday night, Wednesday night, yeah, uh, pretty yeah. regularly. Um, that church, uh, like sadly, a lot of churches sort of didn't adapt well to the changing demographics. So mm. it was as I as I grew up, became more and more of a of a of a outpost of of uh, Caucasians in a lo- largely non Caucasian part of LA. Right. Um, and so as I became a teenager, there weren't very many families left in the church. It had been pretty mm. large when I was a little kid. And yeah. so I started kind of exploring other youth groups uh, at the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church. You know, just kind of getting through my through my friends at that point in school and sure. sort of hopping around. Kind of, yeah. yeah, I had a lot of bouncing around at, to other groups and just trying to kind of grow my faith. I, I was that kid that never really turned hard in rebellion against it, but I certainly right. had to kind of process it. I like to say God has no grandchildren, right? You sort of have to uh, <laughs> have to decide to become a faith person yourself. You don't get to inherit your parents' faith. But right. um, yeah, no, it was it was a it was a big part of our upbringing, and and my parents modeled it well. They were far from perfect, uh, but they were they were good models of what it meant to to kind of walk with Christ. And I feel like I got a real good handle on that as a kid. We had a very similar upbringing. I also grew up in in Southern Cal. Did you go to Forest Home? I got in the opportunity to do that for several years during the summer, a Christian camp up in the San Bernardino Mountains. Funny, Brent. I went once to Forest Home. I went to Hume Lake, if you've ever heard of that right. one. Right. Oh, Hume Lake as well. Yeah, that was the high school camp, right? And then my yeah. family ended up going to Mount Hermon. I don't know if you know that one. Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. I actually worked there between my junior ah. and senior summers of college. So yeah, I have awesome. a lot of affinity to Mount Hermon, actually. Yeah, our church in Santa Barbara goes there. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Forest Home, became a counselor there, and then went to Hume Lake and in high school. So those are always great experiences. And then Camp Marston, I remember as a, a kid, that's the family camp, the YMCA family camp we used to go to. Those experiences are great. Who, who were some of the other early inspirations for you in your childhood, Mark? You know, it's, I probably don't think of childhood inspirations as much. I, um, I I remember by the time I got to middle and high school, some of my teachers were fairly inspirational. I was I was a reasonable athlete, not a superior athlete, but a good athlete. So I kind of was doing well in that. And some of my coaches, I felt like had some good influence on me, although none of them 
you know, super, uh, you know, John Wooden-esque right, <laughs> inspirational. Right. Um, and some teachers that I think really believed in me and thought I could, you know, really make something of myself and tried to en encourage me. And, and I was a good, solid student. And so they, 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 they encouraged that as well. But yeah, I think I, I was, um, I wasn't necessarily drawn to particular people as inspirations. I, I just found that I, I, I liked to, to read uh, a lot as well. And I kind of found some of those ins historical stories inspiring. I wouldn't call myself a history buff, but I enjoy some of that. And so I just, yeah, I guess I began to form some views of kind of what it looked like to, to be a person of faith as I grew up and, and modeled that after some of the people. Uh, there was a youth, back to our, our youth camp stuff, there was a youth director at the local Baptist uh, church that I always felt like was a good, solid example to some of us yeah. teenage boys that were <laughs> needing right. needing some direction at times. <laughs> Most of the time. Most of the time, if we were honest. In, in, in retrospect, probably almost all of the time. <laughs> you and me both. What, what were some of the uh, activities you pursued outside of class? You mentioned sports. Were you involved in specific sports that you loved, you know, music, theater? In today's world, I don't even know if you could do this, Brant. We've become so specialized. I don't. I don't normally totally love that about how our culture has evolved for kids in high school. But um, I was literally. I was in the band. I played varsity basketball and varsity baseball. Yeah. I was on the in the math club. Talk about a wide range uh, stuff. Right. So I, I kind of. I got. I was. Rel uh, I like to think of myself, and this is sort of my life in some ways, kind of. Not super deep in any one thing, but reasonably competent at about a number of things. Journeyman, journeyman. Uh -huh. You know, let's, oh, we can call it Renaissance. Let's let's Renaissance. upgrade it. Let's yeah, upgrade that's even it. better. <laughs> what about what about entrepreneurial things? Journeyman's much closer to reality. There. Yeah. <laughs> Were you involved? Did you have the ubiquitous paper route growing up? Were there things that you did to raise money? Yeah. I missed, you know, I was joking with people. I missed the fast food thing. Practically everybody I know spent at least some time working in fast food retail. I missed that. I just had a kind of an odd collection of things in high school where I, I worked in like landscape slash, you know, yard work. I right. babysat some kids in the neighborhood. Yep. Yep. Um, I, I did a little of that kind of stuff. In college, I worked in the bookstore. I was an RA. You know, I just, I did a bunch of various, you know, odd job thingies. But um, never, never did some of the most traditional ones, a restaurant, fast food, you know, retail. I missed out on some of those, sadly. Were you, were you um, inclined and, and, you know, kind of guided to set aside some of those funds for your college days? Or was it pretty much uh, pocket money free to spend as you wished? It was more pocket money. My parents, uh, you know, didn't make much, as I said. So I was sort of in that qualify for aid <laughs> right, category. Sure. So uh, some of that, and I got some scholarships. I had, I was a real strong student actually in high school. So I was, awesome. I was um, uh, valedictorian kind of thing. So wow. I, I, I got some Great. academic scholarships and um, so that, you know, I, we, we cobbled it together. And of course, back then I took out some loans that felt you know, obnoxiously large. <laughs> and today they sound like, like part of one week of college or something. Hopefully they're all paid off by now. Right. They are. Thankfully <laughs> have been for quite some time, but you know, if Bernie wins, I could have gotten forgiven, I guess that would have been great. <laughs> well, you went to Point Loma Nazarene. I know that well. My, my, uh, as I said, my family grew up in San Diego and La Jolla and my father actually taught there. He uh, taught teachers to be teachers. He, it was the latter part of his career. He grew up as a, as a teacher and then a principal in San Diego County. And then he was invited to the teacher's master's program. So great school. I got a chance to visit there. Beautiful. 
beautiful location. What what made you kind of choose to go down to Point Loma? Great question, Brad. So I was uh, if, back to the little Church of Christ heritage. A lot of people don't even know this. Pepperdine is actually a Church of Christ school, or at least that's its that's heritage. Right. Yeah. And so I I took a hard look at Pepperdine in Southern California. I, I was kind of leaning towards some of the Christian colleges. There's Biola out there. Um, Point Loma. Two of my brothers went to Azusa Pacific, another pretty well-known yep. um, Christian school. Yep. And a good basketball team. Yes, they do. Exactly. <laughs> um, but Point Loma, you, you just mentioned it, Brent. If you ever get to that campus, everybody kind of uh, knows how beautiful Pepperdine is. A lot of people so aren't boring. as familiar. <laughs> you yeah. know, you go to Point Loma, you're like, wow, I'd really like to go to school here when yeah. you first visit, yeah. right? Um, beautiful campus. And, 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 you know, it was a a solid Christian school, but pretty strong academically. I felt like I could validate that. I was a good enough student that I felt like I wasn't going to, you know, shortchange my education. Dead honest with you, I actually went in thinking I might only go for a couple years, then transfer mm. to like a, a UC or something. Right. Um, but ultimately, I just felt like I was I was having a great time there. Yeah. Lived on campus, I presume. Yeah, we did. That was yeah. pretty much the only option back in those days. You sure. kind of lived in the sure. dorms. I, like I told you, I was an RA Right. Um, two years, actually, my sophomore year and my senior year. So I helped supplement tuition. Yes, yeah. exactly. Room board covered with that. Got some of my tuition through scholarships. So thankfully got out of college without much debt, as we said before. But yeah. Point Loma was a great, you know, small liberal arts Christian college. I mean, just had a great time there. Now, you studied economics, but then you ended up going into IT. Did, did you consider, you know, computer science or IT? You and I went to school about the same time, and that's back when we used to write Fortran cards. So it was it was a little bit of a different study program. You just perfectly answered the question. What I tell people is I started out doing a year of comp sci thinking it's I'll date myself. That was 1980. Um, thinking I should go into computers. Everybody's right. going into computers. I did that first year and had a couple of cl classes that included Fortran and thought this is clearly <laughs> not what I'm meant to do with my yes. life. <laughs> Those were the days. We can we can talk about them in jest. Huh? Exactly. So, so th the reason I ended up with economics, this mm -hmm. was sort of classic me not sure what I was doing as I went through life. What I was told somewhere along the way was if you think you might want to do business or you might want to do law, do an undergrad in economics because it's a mm -hmm. nice go either direction. So Good it was foundation. part of my keeping yeah. my options open. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it looks like you you joined, obviously, a couple of great companies coming out. Was IBM or Hewlett Packard first? IBM, right out of school. And yeah. it's funny, Brant, I try to explain to people, joining IBM in 1985 was oh my gosh. like joining Google. Yeah, that was the white shirt, blue tie. You know, but it was, huh? this, it was the up and comer, man. IBM <laughs> was blowing and going. This is, you know, hard to imagine now, right? Pre-Apple, right. right? I mean, IBM was sort of the de facto winner. In great, great training ground. Did they recruit at uh, Point Loma or did you seek them no, out? No, actually, that's a funny story. Yeah. Um, I actually applied, straight up applied and got rejected <laughs> yeah. and uh, found that my brother's friend's dad worked at IBM. So I kind of mm. got to him and he put in a good word. And one of my favorite stories is I framed for a while the rejection letter I got from IBM HR um, next to the letter I got from my hiring manager who basically said, oh my gosh, you're one of the best candidates we've had in a long time for this job. <laughs> and you pull out the framed letter. Yeah. It's it. sort of like, you might want to talk to HR then about how they're screening <laughs> because they, they seem to miss that. I love it. What was that first job at IBM? I was what's called a systems engineer, sometimes called okay. a sales engineer, kind of the yeah. technical part of the, the selling force. Customer facing or were you more back office support? No, no, we were out out in the field. So we were yeah. part of the field selling force. And, and there was always kind of a sales rep. We actually called them marketing reps, funnily enough, back mm -hmm, then. Mm -hmm. And then the, they always had sort of a colleague who was a more technical person. And I got in, Brett, when 
there was kind of, you didn't have to be super technical to be an SE in those days. And I was in that category. I had technical aptitude, but I was not, as we already talked about, a programmer, didn't write code. Right. But I could I could understand technical concepts. But about halfway into my, I spent about seven years at IBM, about halfway through right. that I switched from an SE to a rep. So I was on a quota. Well, we were on a quota as an SE, but not really. <laughs> we were mostly assisting the, the guys actually selling. And then I actually switched over to be an actual salesperson for my latter three years there. Did, did IBM give you some uh, significant leadership responsibilities early on? Is there no? No, idea? actually, interestingly no? enough, uh, that was part of the reason I left, Brant. You know, it, IBM is back to its, its, you know, notoriety at the time. It had never done layoffs. It had only grown and grown and grown pretty much forever. Well, I managed to join when it finally started to go downhill. That got worse later on in my about sixth, I guess I was there about seven years. And in my sixth year, they did their first ever layoffs in IBM history. And as I like to say, I was starting to think about climbing the corporate ladder right when a whole bunch of other people were coming down the corporate ladder. <laughs> Wait a minute, this traffic's going the wrong way. <laughs> so it got really crowded on the ladder. And I was like, this is not a good place to be. So, uh, I, but what I'd done at the time was go to UCLA part-time while I was full-time yep. working to get That's my grad MBA. school degree, yep. MBA. So do you, was that kind of an executive MBA or did you do that you nights and weekends? It was a neat program and they've still got it. They called it the FEMBA, the Fully Employed MBA. So it was kind of a hybrid between a traditional part-time go to night school thing and a classic exec MBA. So most of us were like five to eight years in our career, maybe wow. first line management, early 30s. We weren't kind of exec MBAs or like 40 year old VP type people, you know? Right. And it was a nice program because it was structured, structured, excuse me, like an exec MBA. Everything was kind of predefined program. You just showed up, it, everything was done, your registration, your books, all that stuff. Um, I think 95% of us in my program were corporate sponsored. So pretty much wow. everybody was getting nice. it paid for by their employer. Now, you did that at IBM or was that at HP? I did that at IBM and literally as I finished, I left to go to HP. I got I got my last reimbursement check from IBM because we'd pay and get reimbursed. And then I went, see ya. <laughs> well, you were in the Silicon Valley period during that that whole pre-internet area. Yes. And then and then left to go to Austin, which is kind of interesting. So tell us a little bit about that transition. Yeah. What, you know, so I did that three years at HP, thought, thought I was going to enjoy that. Turned out I just wasn't cut out for big computer companies, I finally decided. Right. So it was 95 after three years at HP and I got um, recruited, kinda. It was a friend of a friend connection to look at this young company in Austin called Tivoli, which ultimately, by the way, fast forward, later on got bought by IBM. That's a funny story, but right. it, it got me exposed to Austin in the mid nineties. And I can tell you, Brant, that you, know, you and I both know Austin's kind of a big name in the landscape today in 1995 it was not <laughs> oh yeah gosh those were very early days oh yeah when i told people in the valley you'll you'll laugh at this when i told people in the valley i was going to austin they'd always say boston with a B. <laughs> i'm like no no austin what are you austin. talking about they're yeah. like austin texas <laughs> like yeah, you know like that's wild. who goes to austin from the silicon valley you know so, so leadership then and managing people, when did that start? Was that at HP or before? So that was part of the thing here. I, was, I'm, I guess I could back to the uh, journeyman comment. I'm a, a bit of a late bloomer in that sense. So I'd worked 10 years. I'd spent time kind of two different kind of field jobs, a few right. different kind of marketing jobs at HP, came as a product manager to Tivoli. And, and super fast, because this is a backdrop to the leadership question, you know, Tivoli was a young, just gone public 
company in 1995 when I got there. But by the way, Brent, let's let's frame that in that era. So Tivoli went public. It had 200 people and 25 million in revenue. Right. That you could go public with those kind of numbers back then. So it wasn't wasn't very big. And, And then we ran for about a year, went real well. And then IBM bought us but kind of cocooned us. So Tivoli mm. sort of ran like an independent growth division inside IBM. And that's when my leadership career got some real legs because as Tivoli was exploding, we were growing really fast. And, right. and so all of a sudden I went from individual contributor to a first line manager, to a director, to a VP, like wow. boom, boom, boom in like four years. Each of those was like one year at a time. What were some of the early leadership lessons you learned? Because we all kind of cut our teeth in those first jobs. Unfortunately, for those that were with us, right? <laughs> and for us. You asked earlier, Brand, about what I learned. Like IBM was a great training ground, right? IBM yeah. had, had been a great company and built a lot of great values. And so I learned some good management practices, even though I didn't manage there. I, I saw it well done in a, in a lot of respects. And so I get to this startup, right? And then, interestingly enough, the startup gets sucked inside IBM. But that was a different thing because it really felt like we were still this independent company. And so, yeah, I learned learned a little bit by being thrown in the deep end of the pool, which isn't always great. Uh, You know, sometimes you learn some wrong things because you're thrashing around just trying to stay afloat. Sure. Um, But I I think I learned early on, I was always very people-oriented. So I I was always very much oriented toward how do I help my people succeed, try to give them clarity of direction, but not get in their way. Um, and so I, was, I had a good sense of that. Probably the, the leadership things I had to learn as I went along were how to deal with problems, right? I, kind of like back to our coaching metaphor, right? I, it's right. easy to work with really great athletes who are motivated. Um, if you either got a great athlete who's unmotivated or somebody who's not that great an athlete, those are much harder. <laughs> right. So I think I had a lot to learn in those early years of of how to deal with some of those situations. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, you know, in larger companies, which you were a part of early on, as well as kind of smaller and then becoming larger, you know, we've always had bosses and mentors, some of them tormentors, uh, that have been difficult to work with. Um, Tell me about, you know, a couple of times maybe of lessons that you've learned from, you know, really great bosses, and you can certainly include their names, uh, where, you know, you just kind of, wow, that's behavior I really like. And then maybe, you know, one or two others where you've seen certain things and those you don't have to mention. Uh, but, you know, kind of give us a little bit of, uh, you know, early lessons of, of you know, Mark's journey in, in management. Well, those are great questions. Um, let me let me chew on that. Uh, give you a piece of even further back from IBM, a guy I kind of considered a mentor gave me great career advice that I um, repeated in, in this book I wrote recently about leadership. Um, mm-hmm. He said, you know, you want to spend about 90 percent of your time on your job and about 10 percent on your career. His point was, if you spend 100% of your time on your job and don't think about your career, you're going to excel at what you're doing right now, but you're not going to think about developing for the future and what you need to do in the future. And conversely, if you're like, I don't know, 70, 30, spending 30% of your time thinking about your career, you're not probably doing a really great job at your current job and you're not going to get job opportunities. Good counsel. (laughs) Right? So that that always stuck in my mind about as a manager, how did I help people really excel at what they're being asked to do now? but spend time with them on where they wanted to go. In, in classic HR speak, I think this is the difference between a performance plan and a development plan, right? Yeah. 
How do you how do you effectively accomplish the things you're being asked to do now while you're spending at least part of your time developing for where you want to go, whether that's technical growth and leadership, managerial leadership, um, diversification, right? I want to I'm in finance, but I want to go figure out how to sell. Um, I think I, I learned early on about the power of some intentionality there, uh, both as a as an in, as an individual contributor, and then as a manager myself, helping individual contributors and, and ultimately managers and directors underneath me to to balance those things. How do you yeah. how do you do well what you're doing, but think about what you need to be working on for the next thing? And SailPoint Technologies is not your first rodeo, right? You were founder of uh, was it Wave Wave Tech Wave, Wave uh, Set Wave Set Technologies. So was that kind of your first venture out into starting a new business? It was. Yeah. Let me kind of go back to the historical story there and give you the context. So I'd been at Tivoli a year. IBM bought it. It exploded. Brett, just to give you a sense, it had about 250, 300 people when IBM bought it. And when I left five years later, it had gone from about 100 million in revenue to almost 2 billion. We had wow. like 6,000 people. I mean, it just, it exploded, right? Yeah. And not, not on the lungs of a Google or a Facebook today, but for that era, that was pretty explosive growth. Oh, yes. yeah. And so there was a lot of trial by fire, a lot of learning as you went. But so now it's the late 90s. <laughs> the internet is a big thing. <laughs> people right. have, you know, started to make all kinds of money and done all kinds of interesting things. And so three buddies and I decided, hey, you know, we got to try this entrepreneurial thing. You know, we, we, we are all early enough at Tivoli that we had sort of seen it when it was young. And we thought we kind of understand what this is like at some level. Um, <clears throat> and we had been, um, I guess, identified as kind of a, some up and comers by some of the venture capital folks mm -hmm. in Austin sure. who are looking for the next gen guys, right? Like yeah. who's going to come out of this thing and do some next things, right? So we, we, you, you know enough about tech history here, you'll appreciate this. So late 99, we decided to leave. We quit our relatively strong job. By then I was a vice president uh, at Tivoli. So, you know, pretty senior in, in IBM structure. Yeah. And, um, you know, four of us left and we quit our jobs and, get some early, what we would today call seed capital. We didn't even call it that back then, some seed funding to start to figure out literally what were we going to do? We didn't have an idea when we quit. We just said, we're going to go do something, right? We're going to start a business and in tech, certainly. And <laughs> about two months into that, three months into that, the, the, the internet blows up. People start, you know, exploding all over the place. Four wives look at four young guys and go, what the heck did you just do? <laughs> right. Can you get your job back with that nice, secure, stable salary? Yeah. Um, yeah. But by then we were pretty committed and, and we went down that path of raising capital, defining a market opportunity um, and, and built that company Waveset. And, and Waveset was identity management. So yeah, that it was, was your the first same fundamental market brand. space that yeah. SailPoint's in, Brant. So yeah. We, yeah. we had sort of seen that as a bit of an extension of what we learned at Tivoli. There were right. some, some new problems emerging around keeping track of, of, of the identities you know, the, that you cared about in technology. Think about all the constituents, employees, contractors, business partners, all the people that you care about as a business who have access to your systems, right. your IT systems. There was just like no real discipline about how to do that, how to correlate it, um, how to keep track of people across all these different technology generations, right? What would what had happened in tech, right? We'd gone from mainframes to this client server concept to web concepts. And so there's all these different applications and technology in the business world and keeping track of like who's Brant, what does Brant do for this business? What should Brant have access to was just messy, right? Mm. And that was the problem WaveSet set out to solve 
And, and so it turns out that was a real problem. Honestly, when we were out getting started, we continually had to explain to people that we were not a dot-com, <laughs> right? right. All, all the right. dot-coms were blowing up in 2000, 2001. That's and by right. the way, of course, as you know, Brant, what happens 9-11 of 01, right? That's right. So it was, a, it was a pretty interesting time to get started in our first startup. You know, the internet bubble say. burst, 9-11 yeah. happened. <laughs> it, was, right. it was a bit of trial by fire, like I said. But we, we did well. We, we grew pretty well in those first four years. And you ended up getting purchased. And we got by, purchased. Yeah, by Sun Microsystems. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Sun Microsystems, which got itself later on purchased by Oracle, um, right. saw that technology. And, and there was literally five or six startups that all were kind of doing similar things. And we all got sucked into big tech companies. IBM bought right. one, Sun, Oracle, et cetera. So it was a, it was a rapid path. It was a four-year run. You know, from literally no idea to an acquisition, um, <clears throat> pretty successful outcome for the investors and and all the you know the leaders of the company and and employees. So by and large, it was a really positive uh, process, right? And then uh, you decided to leave and do it all over again. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what led to that decision back well, in Well, and that's why I kind of told the end of that story the way I did. We thought, well, that was fun, <laughs> right? We took, you know, four years, built a company, got acquired. That was fun. We should do that again. <laughs> yeah. So, so you got the band back together. Was it the same four or five guys? And so a couple it was of a on? subset. A couple of the same, a couple of new, but all people we had worked with before and knew. Right. And so we got started um, in basically the very end of 05, let's just call it 06. So we had, we had stuck around at Sun for about a year after we got acquired, took a little break, then started this company. And yeah. th this will sound familiar, right? So we get started, we kind of go into the market, kind of in a similar market space. <laughs> 05, 06. Right. So here comes 07, <laughs> we know it's 08. <laughs> you know, I just have impeccable timing is one of my life stories. Exactly. Your wife must think so. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, we, we sort of hit that fun challenge as right as we were kind of getting into the market, had our first few customers, 07, 08 happens. And sure enough, you know, we're, we're kind of navigating that challenging period. But um, thankfully, we were early enough in that cycle that we could um, that we could still keep the, the ship basically pointed in the same direction sure. and 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 accomplish kind of the basic, you know, building of the technology that we were trying to do. And then, of course, the world started to improve uh, in right. the next few years. Right. <laughs> and you guys made it through once again. How has your faith kind of been involved in all this, Mark? Um, obviously, you know, you uh, joined companies that were, um, you know, very much uh, secular, right, in their approach and, and ended up there. And yet now, you know, you're you're on your own in terms of founding a, a new direction. Tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of how you kept the faith and, uh, you know, kept Christ involved in your work. No, it's a very good question, Brand. And I would say, uh, like hopefully all of us that are growth-oriented people in our lives, you know, I've certainly grown a lot in my understanding of that over the years. I, I think if I think back to my IBM HP days, some of that was just trying to be a good moral, ethical person, right? Not that there's anything wrong with that, obviously, in a business setting, but I don't think I really thought that much about what my faith looked like at work. I think mm -hmm. you and I are the same general vintage. <laughs> and I yep. think this whole, you know, there's a few buzz phrases out there, the sacred secular divide, um, right. you know, things that, that what does it look like to, to, to be a person of faith at work? It was, it was a different time when you and I got started yep. in the industry, right? I, I jokingly say you could talk about a lot of stuff at IBM in the 80s. Religion was not one of them. That was not one. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. And so there was sort of a, that was your personal life. You kind of kept it out of work, blah, blah, blah. 
And then, you know, in the startup realm, you know, obviously one of the joys of starting a company from scratch, both WaveSet and SailPoint, is you get to define the values, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and what I had was, a, in both cases, kind of a, a set of founders who all shared the same moral and ethical views, not all shared the same faith worldview. So I was, I was one of the core um, guys who kind of took the pen, as it were, when we were capturing our values. So we, we all were aligned around values. Mm. I, I think that my mission, even and then, was to make sure that underpinning those values were some very clear biblical Christian concepts. Yeah. And, and so I always joke with people that are faith folks, if you read our values, you'll recognize some Christian things there, but there's no verses or scripture that <laughs> are attached to them, right? It's just concepts and principles that people will definitely resonate with. And, you know, it's amazing how, uh, how, how those become embraced. I, uh, you know, was on a, a conference call earlier today where Mike Sharo, our CEO of C12, was talking about, you know, various companies that have Slack types of programs and how, you know, they're both secular and Christians inside and how there was a certain side of that equation, which was much more fear-based and, you know, clearly very scared about what's going on. And the, and the Christian side was able to, you know, kind of reach out and share scripture and provide comfort in a way that uh, perhaps, you know, wouldn't have normally happened in other circumstances and uh, found, you know, the, uh, the secular side to be very open with that. And, you know, what a great opportunity for more ministry. Does that happen at, at SailPoint? Is there opportunities uh, for you to do so? I know you're a publicly traded company, as we spoke the other day. That, of course, presents uh, also some challenges with regards to your, you know, regulations and so forth. Or, you know, or, or are you able to freely talk about your faith? No, it's it's been a very interesting evolution in in the business world, as you know, probably Brent. I, I think you know back to that twenty five, thirty five, excuse me, thirty five years ago in my beginnings of my career at IBM. Yeah. You know, it just really wasn't allowed to talk about. Now, even in the marketplace today, the topics of quote spirituality are very accepted. Right, people yeah. are very comfortable talking about not just their business life, but their personal life, their spiritual life in many cases. So it's it's a it's an acceptable thing as long as you're not, you know, to use the, the fancy word proselytizing, to use the, right. the less fancy word shoving it down someone's throat, <laughs> um, right? I think, I think our job Never is- Never a good thing on any principle. Right, exactly. I always say, you know, there may have been one or two conversions from street corner guys yelling at you, but I don't know that there have been. Um, and so I think, I think in general, my feeling is that as a faith person, uh, a Christ follower in my role, my job is to to live as exemplary a life as I can, and to show care and concern for people. And and as uh, as Paul says, always be ready in season and out of season. It's either Paul or Peter, sorry, uh, one of those two. Um, it'd be ready in season or out of season to share the reason for our hope, right? And so I feel like we do get the opportunity in SailPoint's context to to love on people, as we say today, uh, to share good things with them. Um, I have a guy who's part of our team who's kind of kind of become the, the the internal shepherd, if I can use that term, nice. for our yeah. for our faith-based community inside SailPoint. Yeah. And cool. it's been a really neat time. Yeah, a lot yeah. of neat stuff. How many employees now? How many offices? We locations? have about 1,300 folks. We have wow. three big sites around the world that are kind of mm-hmm. our headquarters in Austin. Uh, well, back to the faith thing, right? I have a big office, as I mentioned, in India, big office in, in or mid-sized office, actually, in Tel Aviv, and then hundreds of people spread out. And I say our offices 
around the world look a lot like Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Sales, sales for the most part, I met sales and support. Yeah, yeah and, and with a global team like that and, and employees in not just different countries, but different cultures, different faith communities. Again, I think we have to be very sensitive and appropriate about being respectful of diversity because it's a yeah. reality of, of who we are as a company. Um, I think I've certainly tried to portray a sense of openness and welcoming to anyone who wants to engage in spiritual mm -hmm. topics. And, you know, we can't, like say, we can't somehow um, provide favoritism, as I can say it, toward the Christians that is unfavorable right. to others. That's not okay in today's context at all. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a matter of fact, Brent, you probably know this. It's fascinating. Out in the Silicon Valley now, uh, I think the acronym is ERG, Employee Resource Groups. Yes. Uh -huh. Even these big corporations, Facebook, Apple, Google, now have in, in their in their support of diversity, right. have right. Christian employee resource groups. It's like, yeah. hey, that's right. that's a subset of our community, right? Right. And so I think it's to be respected. Yeah. 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 It's like if yeah. we're going to really champion diversity, then you know the folks that what are believers need yeah. to be protected and respected just like we would respect the Muslims in our company or the Hindus or the atheists, right? We can't, we can't pick on someone in a work setting because we don't agree with their worldview, right? Well, you've been about 15 years now at, at SailPoint. Tell, tell me a little bit about how your leadership style has evolved over time. You know, I think um, it's, it's funny. I, I, my, my, my pastor buddy, Matt Cassie, likes to say, the older I get, the fewer convictions I have, but the ones I have, I hold on to even tighter, <laughs> which I think is a very true thing for a lot of us. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, like I feel that. like now as a leader and manager, I have fewer, stronger convictions, right? One of them is I have this concept of guardrails and managing people. I think it's true for me with my executive team, and I certainly champion this up and down our management structure. And I always talk about keeping people between two guardrails, right? On the one side, I contend that I've never met a competent professional who likes to be micromanaged. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> There's just no one who thinks, please tell me exactly what you want me to do all day, every day. That would be so helpful. You know, people with intelligence and education and experience absolutely want to be given freedom to solve problems, address challenges. But they also, the other guardrail brand that I think is important is they need to have enough clarity and understanding of the objectives and goals of the organization, or simpler said, what success looks like, so that yeah. they have clarity of what you're trying to get done as an organization or what their group is trying to accomplish and freedom of how to accomplish that. I, I really strongly believe that when you keep professional workers between those two guardrails, that is what leads to job satisfaction, mm. right? They, they, they have enough understanding of what they're supposed to get done and the freedom to get it done. And then if they're working with a team, by the way, this is, you, you talked about team points earlier, you know, if they're working in a team environment with a bunch of teammates who have that same view, <laughs> that's a very healthy, generally energizing work environment. Even if the problems are really hard, even if it's significant challenges they're working on, like we are going through some pretty challenging times right now, I think when people are working with great, competent teammates that aren't arrogant and they're getting to use their skills, experience, knowledge, education day to day, that's just super fun, empowering, rewarding for almost anyone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I heard it said recently that that CEOs are really used to having their question answered, but they're not very comfortable when they have their answers questioned. How do you deal with that in your culture? 
Well, I, I, I try to live by example that I don't know it all. Uh, and, and so I think there's a, there's a humility here um, that's key to being, you know, we, we've talk, we throw around the term servant leadership a lot. Right. And in my mind, part of what it means to be a servant leader is to recognize that you're ultimately serving the people that work for you. And therefore, you have to be willing to listen and understand what they need so they can be successful. Well, that mm -hmm. takes an attitude of humility, right? That says, I don't have all the answers. I don't yeah. know everything you know. And so my job is to champion you and let you thrive, again, by giving you those guardrails of, of enough understanding of what we need to get done and freedom to do it. And so I think it's 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 really living between those guardrails. And, and to do that, back to your question, Brent, you have to be willing to listen and understand the old Stephen Covey seek first to understand. Yep. Right. Yep. How do I how do I ensure that um, that I'm paying attention to the needs and concerns of my people? I can only do that if I fundamentally have an attitude that I'm not better than they are. Right. You're not the smartest person in the room. Right. Nor, nor do you need to be. Yeah. And, and the good news is the older I get and the more diverse the set of challenges I'm working on in our company, the more obviously true that is. I cannot possibly <laughs> be the smartest person on every topic in the room, right? Nor would you want to be. No, exactly. <laughs> Mark, you've been very generous with your time. We do have a couple last questions, though. And, you know, talking a little bit about hiring and growing an organization, you know, we're working at a time, obviously, where there's a lot of hiring freezes. There's been a lot of people laid off. Gosh, record high unemployment. But, you know, at some point in time, we will rebuild. And just tell us a little bit about, you know, wh what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Well, I will just uh, blatantly plagiarize from one of my favorite business offers, a guy named Pat Lencioni. And um, oh, yeah. he wrote a great book a few years ago called The Ideal Team Player. And right. it's just three simple concepts. And we pretty much adopted that into how we think about hiring people, frankly, at any level, right? And his, his three big concepts are hungry, humble, and smart, right? Yeah. That people need to be hungry in a sense of ambitious. I think we, we threw out that term growth mindset earlier, Brant, just mm -hmm. that idea that you want people who are just not stale or stagnant. Even if, even if to them growth looks like, I just want to be the best accountant I can be. They may not want to try to climb up the organization or something, but they're always trying to get better and learn that continual learning mindset. Yeah. Um, I think that's what growth, growth and, and, and um, you know, hungry looks like. And obviously each of these has a negative, right? There's, right. there's a, a bad form of ambition and hungry that crushes people on the way to the top. Um, yeah. That's not healthy. Uh, the humble thing, um, I'll quote C.S. Lewis here. Uh, at least I believe this is a C.S. Lewis quote. I've had a few people say they think it's someone else. But anyways, uh, I love this quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself than you should. It's just thinking of yourself less. <laughs> mm. Right. That that humble people are not falsely, falsely humble about their abilities. Right. I would say, you know, let's the dear departed Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant were to say, oh, I'm really not that good. People look like, what are you talking about? You're one of the greatest <laughs> basketball players ever. But but the kind of teammates, maybe I'll shift from Kobe to Steph Curry here for a second in basketball land. You know, one of the reasons Steph Curry and that team have been so phenomenally successful at the Golden State Warriors is they have kind of a humble attitude as a team, right? I'm it's not all about me. It's about the team. Right. Right. And that's the characteristic of humility in the workplace. It's about hiring super competent, really talented people. But those people can't be all about themselves, not prima donnas um, that just, you know, we call that smart jerks. Right. We don't want smart jerks. <laughs> 
Um, and then the third is um, hungry, humble, and smart. And in today's culture, Brent, everybody understands there's both an IQ that we all have talked yeah. about forever, but there's an EQ, right? There's this emotional intelligence of how do you do with others? Like I, I always say, go back to kindergarten, plays nicely with others on your report card. Um, you know, we want people that are good teammates that, that collaborate well, because so much of what we do in the workplace now has to be collaborative. That's right? right. So it's hungry, humble, smart is just a really simple three handles for us to keep an eye on the kind of people we want. And that's true at any level. I mean, that's true of a college kid coming out to write code. And it's true of yeah. a senior VP with 30 years of experience, right? I want those characteristics in everybody. I love that, Mark. Last question. Uh, what career and life advice would you give to someone who you know has their eyes on the corner office? Maybe they've been corporate for a number of years and want to aspire to that corner office or like you, you know, kind of gone in and out of the big corporate framework and decided to found a company of their own. Yeah, that's a great point. Oh, here, I'll, I'll do a shameless plug, Brent. I, I wrote a book recently about how I think about this called Joy and Success at Work. They can go read my book. I love it. Make sure you send us a link. We'll have it available to all that listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, let me, let, let me get back to your question more seriously. I, I think a couple of thoughts. One is, I do think that if you aspire towards senior leadership, and, I, and the ultimate, I guess, is the corner office, to the extent we all even have offices anymore. Um, right, right. You know, I think there's, like you said, two ways to do that. One is to start your own company. Um, and, and be in the corner office from the day one. <laughs> um, my general advice if people are entrepreneurially thoughtful like that is to not go straight there in their youth. I, I happen to believe that there are a handful of notable exceptions, right? And we know their first names, right? Bill and, and Steve and mm -hmm. Michael and others who built great companies starting in college. <laughs> but in right. general, most of the world is not a, a freak of nature. And so I think for a lot of us, getting some experience, five, 10 years of understanding an industry or a domain and really becoming somewhat expert and then trying to go start something with a lot of knowledge about that is just a higher likelihood of success, right? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great training grounds out absolutely. there. Absolutely. You know, like you and I said, go to a big company that has great training and go learn and, and then go. If, if you're going up the corporate ladder, my primary advice, and there's a great example of this who's gotten quite a bit of notoriety, Alan Mulally, who turned around. Ford and yeah. before that did a fantastic job at Boeing. I mean, he's a phenomenal leader. You read some of his stuff and he's just humble. He's about teamwork, but he's about clarity. And I think, you know, if you're going to aspire to the corner office, be that kind of, as Jim Collins always said, level five leader, right? The kind of guy who is not all about the ego, but is about building a great team and accomplishing great things. And I think we see lots of examples of that in, in the corporate world, but frankly, far more examples of the egomania. And, right. and I'm like, you can have, quote, success, financially at least, on either side of that deal, I guess, but you want to be Alan Mulally, right? You want to be the kind of guy who everybody admires and respects, not just for the amazing success they brought to the organization, but for the way they did it. Well, Mark McLean, CEO and founder of SailPoint Technologies, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks so much, Brant. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.